0: Good morning. It's my honor to welcome you to the house of the Lord this morning. Would you please stand and join me in the call to worship? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? You have made them the rulers and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet: all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. All that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our, Lord, our, on all the earth. our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your love and for your presence with us this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we would hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: praise to God, which is why we gather each Sunday for worship. It's great to see each of you. We especially welcome those of you here for Alumni and Parent Weekend, and I hope it's been a, a great weekend for you. And I want to encourage you to take a moment, share with a greeting with others who are here in worship.
2: Today, our world is being transformed by love. People are sending shoebox gifts filled with the good news of Jesus Christ. Fueled by the power of prayer, shoeboxes are traveling to the ends of the earth, bringing joy through a simple gift to over 100 million precious children. Shoebox gifts are shining a light into communities all around the world. Bringing good news and great joy with Operation Christmas Child.
3: Good
4: news! I want the children of the world to know. I want their parents to know that God loves them. He hasn't turned his back on them. He cares for them and he wants them to be with him in heaven. That's what it's all about.
2: These gifts bring joy not only to the hands that receive the shoeboxes, but also those hands that give. People all over the country are excited to pack shoebox gifts.
0: When I look at these boxes, I just see thousands of smiling kids.
3: It's an opportunity for the children to learn about Christ by just
1: one simple gift. We're here at a processing center where volunteers have traveled from all over the country just to be a part of this special project. I think it's an awesome opportunity to change the world.
2: Going to the ends of the earth, shoeboxes are carried by any means necessary to that one special child waiting a world away. Veronica and her siblings found themselves abandoned at an orphanage in Mexico after both of their parents were sent to prison. When I received my shoebox, God sent it for me. I could see how God, through Operation Christmas Child, he's not just changing my life, he's changing a lot of kids'
3: lives. I remember three years ago when Veronica received her shoebox. Now she is a teacher in The Greatest Journey.
2: It was never enough for us to go in, hand a child a shoebox, share the gospel with them, and then leave.
4: We developed this curriculum, The Greatest Journey, a 12-week discipleship program for the kids that make decisions for Christ.
2: After completing The Greatest Journey, children are blessed in a graduation ceremony where they receive a certificate and a Bible in their own language.
0: The Greatest Journey is saying, Jesus loves you. You are a somebody.
3: But
2: I truly believe we are only seeing just the beginning of this project. Because the Lord, He's got something that is beyond our imagination, into the millions and into the billions. And these children will
1: change the world.
4: Every shoebox is important. You know, they're all different. There's no two shoeboxes alike, kind of like these snowflakes. No two snowflakes are alike. But every shoebox is important. Because when you pack that box and you fill it with your love for these kids around the world and when you pray for the child who's going to get your box, God hears those prayers and God answers those prayers. You see, I want the children of the world to know that God loves them and He has not forgotten them. And I want to thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for being a part of Operation Christmas Child. God bless you and a Merry Christmas.
1: Seems early to think about Christmas. Though so I was in a store the other day, and they had all kinds of Christmas things out, and it was kind of shocking. But we uh, we participated in Operation Christmas Child for a while. It's a, a great ministry for children around the world. In your bulletins today, it's a little uh, pamphlet about how to pack a shoebox, what to put in it. There's also a prayer guide, and we'd love to collect a few hundred boxes, if not more. So we uh, appreciate your your participation, and we'll be collecting them over the next few weeks. Thank you in advance for uh, blessing these children with your gifts. To our gracious Creator, we come and acknowledge our need for Him. Please join me in the prayer of confession printed in your bulletin. Gracious Lord, far too often we are more interested in conflict than in peace. We fight to get our own way, we wrestle for recognition. We argue in order to prove that we are right. We are typically more concerned with winning than with loving. Our attitude creates conflict, tension, and much pain in the church. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Give us a new vision of the Prince of Peace. Open our hearts to the Holy Spirit that makes us more interested in compassion and grace than in perfection and judgment. We ask this in confidence, knowing that you hear us and that you forgive us through the mercy of Christ. Amen.
0: Our first scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 through 2, uh, verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered water he called Seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, "'Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground.' So God created mankind in his own image." And all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. I would invite you to stand for the doxology as the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Father, your care and provision for us is perfect. We're grateful now for this opportunity to give back a small portion of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: been a practice for a number of years to open the altar rail as a place of prayer. Sometimes kneeling is the most appropriate way of expressing the desire of our hearts and our prayers. So if you would like to come to the altar rail and uh, offer your prayers, please join me. Father, it is hardly enough to affirm your faithfulness. And yet, it is one of the most profound things we can say. That you are faithful. You are faithful when life is up and when life is down and everything in between. And today we come to you in prayer because we believe that you are the faithful God. We come today acknowledging the pain and hurt and struggle and suffering of people who are dear to us. We think especially today of Bruce Brenneman and Bill Roski. We pray for Matt Bissett and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen for Linda Roth, for Alton Shea and Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler. We ask for your healing grace in each of them. We pray for their caregivers, asking that you would give them strength and encouragement. Father, we pray for the other needs that either are represented by us or people we love. Whether the, the struggle is anxiety or fear, a financial or relationship crisis, or just life, we pray for your grace, your faithfulness. We think about our world. Every day we are reminded that we live in a fallen, broken world. Images of violence and terrorism, of famine and drought. Refugees. Vulnerable people manipulated and taken advantage of. We pray for your grace in this world. We pray that you will bring peace where there is war. We pray that you will bring healing. We ask that you will bring water and food to places of drought and famine and shelter and protection for those who do not feel it. And Father, we pray for, for, especially for the crisis, the Ebola crisis in Africa. Lord, we ask that you will bring an end to this disease. We pray that you will comfort all who are grieving from its effects and that you will heal those who have been affected by it and that you will bless those who are treating them and helping them and that we will see your merciful hand at work in very dire circumstances. We also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world many of whom live in circumstances of fear and opposition. We pray today especially for Pastor Stan and the church in Uzbekistan. We pray for your grace on him and on the church there. In the midst of very difficult circumstances, give them courage and strength and help them to know in a very real way your faithfulness. And may their courage and their lives inspire us in ours. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for the abundance of your blessing that we do not deserve but graciously receive. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
0: Our New Testament reading for this morning is found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory
1: those of you who haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, last spring, I asked the congregation, uh, "What would you like to hear a sermon about? Uh, what questions do you have?" As, after I received more than a hundred responses, I decided maybe I'd gotten myself into something I didn't want to. But uh, the bookmarks that are on the back table there—if you don't have one, pick one up. And I know last week some, somebody took uh, more, a bunch of them, to give some friends. But you're welcome to do that. But these give you a list of those questions, and I narrowed down those 100 to about 14 sermons. Um, maybe the others we'll get to later. But I, I did find, as I was going through those, that there are some questions that people ask that, quite frankly, are pretty difficult to answer. And, and one of those questions is today. How did the, the earth, the world, get here, and how long did it take? Now, I just want to say right up front, I'm not a scientist I'm not the son of a scientist. I'm not even the relative of a scientist. I have nothing of science in my blood that I know of. So I'm feeling very um, uh, uncomfortable uh, talking to you about this. But I at least have enough sense to go and talk to people who, do, who are scientists and who, whose life is given to doing these kinds of things. And I tell you this because when we get to the end, if you don't like what I've said, you come talk to me. I'll give you their names and you can go blame them. Because it's their fault, I'm sure. We had children, were, uh, some of the children were asking questions that we recorded. They had some very insightful questions as we think thinking about creation and about how the world got here. And a number of them wanted to know about uh, dinosaurs. Where do dinosaurs fit in the picture? And I was assuming they meant the big scary things, not the purple, lovey, friendly one that's on television. Though they might have meant that one too, and that's a whole other sermon. But they they were asking about how did the water and the sea come together and and the land and and questions about um, plants and animals and, and very insightful things. And one of the questions was simply, how did everything get here? When you think about how the world was created, how it started, there really are two theories that you can boy I think you can boil most everything down to two theories in general. And on one hand, you have people who believe in random chance. Some would call it uh, atheistic evolution, and, and it is uh, a sense that evolution took place, everything that we now know as far as the world and everything about the world is the process of evolution and it started by random chance. I don't know exactly how that started, but something happened outside of a being starting it. And on the other side, you have the idea that a being, a creator, set things into motion. And there is, uh, at times... Um, ...animosity about those two positions. And there are certainly very a lot of nuances about them. You have, for instance, you have... Uh, ...some people believe in theistic evolution. Where you, you have... Uh, ...they would believe that a creator... ...I think many of them would say God, but not all of them. Uh, a creator started things at the very minimalist level... ...and allowed evolution to do the rest... And some believe that in the process of evolution, it came at roadblocks and places where a leap needed to happen. And God stepped in and uh, facilitated that leap and then moved on to stages, moved forward. And there there are uh, Christian scientists who believe that and feel very strongly about it. And others who are not Christians that believe that. There are people who believe in uh, intelligent design. As a, as a theory of uh, how we understand creation in the world. And these would be, not again, not all Christians, but many would be, where they sort of look at it from the other way around. They look at the world around us and see how complex it is and think something of intelligence had to design this. For to say that this world happened by random chance is ludicrous. The odds of that are so astronomical, we would never believe it about anything else. I've always thought I've thought for years that no one should be more uh, should believe more in a creator than than doctors, who understand the human body and the intricacies and the inner workings of the human body better than anyone, and why, and see how the body works and heals itself and all the parts of it work together in such a way that we live and breathe and think an act, it's beyond comprehension to think that just happened by accident, by randomness. And so there is this sense of all of that is designed, all the world that is designed leads us back to a being who started it. The, the, The issue that often arises, and I think probably in our setting, I would guess that the majority of us, I would think because we're here in church, the majority of us would probably say we believe in a creator. It might even go so far as to say that probably most of us believe in the God of the Bible creating. But even within the context of that perspective, there are nuances of it. Especially when you begin talking about how old the world is. There are people who believe, within even within the circle of being a creationist, Who believe that the world is billions of years old, and that um, that even though it wouldn't necessarily believe in theistic evolution, they believe in the progress of the world, moving toward things, and the world is ten to twenty billion years. Universe is ten to twenty billion years old, and the Earth is maybe four and a half, five billion years old. And then on the other side of that, you have people that would be old Earth people, and then on the other side, you have young Earth people. And the, the people who believe in young earth believe that the earth is maybe five to 7,000 years old. And one of the, the arguments that gets caught in the middle between young earth and old earth is how do you interpret Genesis 1? The passage we just read. And much of it centers around how you interpret the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day. If you are young earth, you translate that word meaning 24 hours of time. If you believe in an old Earth, you would see that word as more figurative, metaphorical. And as you read through the scriptures, you find that 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 word is certainly used many times to mean twenty-four hours, but it's also used figuratively and metaphorically as well. And so you you have you, you can see both perspectives of that. And uh, and the, the discussion seems to form there and then move forward and there are different views about the differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and, and the different ways in which they tell the creation story. And much of that then comes back to young earth older kinds of discussions. Do you interpret everything in the scripture literally or not? Charles Hummel, who for years worked for InterVarsity, was asked once, do you take the Bible literally? And he said, well, I take the literal parts literally, and I take the figurative parts figuratively, and I take the metaphorical parts metaphorically. I think he's probably right. And so it is a challenge to us to know how to interpret those passages. I find that in the course of this discussion, there is a, um, there is a, 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 a sense of... In, in some places in the church, a sense of a fear about science. There, there, is, uh, there is discussion as you read through the way people interpret things. For some people, science is the enemy. It is us against them. Because science is trying to prove that there is no God, there is no creator. James Watson, who was one of the scientists to uncover DNA said in an interview that his whole purpose for that, his, his whole purpose for this being his life work, was not the betterment of society. It was not to keep innocent people out of prison or to send guilty people to prison. He said the primary motivating desire, the driving force for his desire to uncover DNA was to prove that the earth could exist without God. That there was no God. Wow, that's, that's an interesting reason to, to spend your life doing something. But so there is this sense, there is is certainly, for some people, animosity from science toward Scripture and toward people of faith. And it goes both ways. And as I read, one of the things that came to my mind was that there is a sense of fear sometimes about how we view science. As if science in itself is evil. But science is simply the result of exercising the gift of God to know, to learn, to to discover. And it's something that God gave us as minds. And, And science is not evil. We may corrupt science. We may twist it. We may turn it just like we do all kinds of things. But to say that science is evil simply because some people take it and, and lead it, have it lead to, to circumstances and, and consequences that we don't like would be like saying that, that sex is evil because we have perverted it. When Scripture tells us it's a gift of God. The reality is whatever we have, we tend to pervert and we tend to skew and twist to our own ends. And science is one of those things. But that doesn't mean we say it's the enemy and it's us against them. It, it, because discovery is a gift of God. You think about, someone said to me recently, I think of God watching us discover like I I felt when I watched my children discover something. If you've had that opportunity or you've seen it, of a child, maybe you've been the child and you experienced it, and you run to your parents and say, Mommy, Mommy, look what I just discovered. I just realized that... 12 times 12 is 144. And we could say to them, why are you getting so excited about that? I mean, I know a lot more than that. I can talk to you about geometry and algebra and trigonometry and physics. 12 times 12, big deal. Or we could say to them, in a year from now, that won't mean anything to you. You'll be so far beyond that. But we don't say that to them. We get as excited as they are. Because we love them and they are discovering new things. And we love to see our children discover new things. And God does too. It's a gift to us. And instead of seeing that discovery as something to fear, it's something we embrace. It's as though we are afraid that science is going to discover something that will, that will prove, without a shadow of a doubt, that God isn't real. And if that's our fear... Then we need to take a new look at the God we worship. As if science could prove anything about God not being real. And see, that's the whole point is that if people are honest, all of the things that we we try to understand about creation and about science and the world, all of them, in one way or another, are faith statements. Now, people don't want to admit that. People like to use the word this is a fact. This is true without a shadow of a doubt. I have no, this is precise and exact. But the reality is, none of us were there. So it's all in some way or another, a little bit of conjecture. And it's a a statement of faith. We believe that the Bible is true. Or people say, I believe that it happened by random chance. But it's, in some point or another, it comes down to faith. So having said all of that, we turn to the creation story and think, and as some, one of the children asked. So I just, I just very simply said, I wonder why God created the world. I thought, that's a profound question that we don't think about that much. And you look at Genesis 1, and my next question beyond that is, why does Genesis tell us this story of the creation? What is it about Genesis 1 and 2 and pieces of scripture as we move along? What is it about this that God is trying to help us understand? Let me just share with you a few things real quickly. I think we need to understand that Genesis and the story of creation is not intended to be viewed as a, as a, a timetable, but as revealing the otherness of God. So you you understand the context in which Genesis is written and given to Israel. It is to tell them there is a different story about the way the world began than all the other stories of the nations around you. Because when we read the the stories, the creation stories of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and the other nations, completely different stories. In those stories, creation, the world begins because of an accident. Because the gods are fighting with each other and one of them defeats the other one. There is a story in which two gods are fighting over control of the heavens and one wins and kills the other one. And takes a sword and slits it down the middle and divides it in half. And the one half becomes heaven and the other half becomes the earth. It is the result of war. In none of the stories is there any intentionality ...about the things beginning. Only in the biblical story do we find it stating... ...in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God chooses to create. It is, there is intent in God's creation. And the story really is about God. God is mentioned 30-some times in the, in this brief creation story... ...over and over and over again... Because it's about God first and foremost. And about the God who creates intentionally in ways that are far different than all the other peoples around Israel. And he wants them to understand that. He is other than all the other beings that they might hear about. He is different. And and we see that God's intentionality is not just about creating water and land and plants and animals. It is ...about creating human beings as well. He says, let us make human beings in our own image. God creates human beings purposefully... ...because he desires intimate relationship with us. He desires a reciprocal relationship with us. He could have created us in a way where, like all the other peoples of the earth... ...where they didn't really want us, but it just happened... In one story, human beings are created because one of the gods has been punished and sent to the earth to toil on the earth. And he he hates it and he complains about it. And so the gods say, fine, we'll create some human beings to do this work that you don't want to do. And God says, I created you because I love you. Because I want relationship with you. I'm different than all those other beings. And you can see how that changes things like prayer. We aren't praying to a God that we have to manipulate and cajole. We pray to a God who loves us, who created us. Our value and our worth as human beings comes from God who created us, who chose to make us and bring us into this world. God loves us. And even when human beings reject him as the risk of creation makes possible... And God allows the consequences of their sin to be seen. From that moment on, He is working to woo them back to Himself, even to the point of sending His Son to a cross, so that we might know the depths of His love for us. And God entrusts, He loves us so much that He entrusts His creation to us. He says to Adam and Eve, Rule over the earth, subdue it, toil, till the earth, work. Because I have given you the privilege of caring for my creation. It's, it's astounding to me how, what a poor track record the church has at caring for creation. You would think that of all the people in the world, people who believe that God created the earth so perfectly and has said, it is good, would be the best and the most conscientious about caring for this good creation that God has made. I think part of it has to do with our view of heaven, and we'll talk a bit about that next week. But there is this sense that, that we, we miss this privilege that God has given us to care for all that he has made. Because God says, this is good. And again, all the other nations see the world not as good, but as as an evil nuisance to them. They only created it because they felt forced to do it or because it was accidental. But God says, this is, I didn't just make it, I made it good. Or Victor Hamilton translates the words where it says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He translates it, it's beautiful. And I like that because when you talk about it being good, it sort of has a moral quality that good as opposed to bad. But beautiful has an aesthetic quality to it. That there, at the end of the day, God looks back and says, yeah, that's beautiful. I like that. He's called us to care for it. I wonder if maybe one of the reasons why some scientists oppose our positions because they see the inconsistencies in us. That we say, God created and it's all good, and then we ignore it. Or worse. I think it has something to do with the seventh day. The thought struck me earlier this week, as I was thinking about all of this, thinking about the six days that Genesis mentions... And I wondered, is it possible that the writer of Genesis talks about six days simply for the reason, the purpose of getting us to see the essential nature of the seventh day? Because you can't get to seven until you've counted the six, right? And we get to seven, and God says, every other day is, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. He gets to seven and says, it's holy. And the end, of, the end of creation is not the sixth day, it's the seventh day. It's not an appendage. And God says, I have built this day, the Sabbath, into everything about creation, including human beings. Now, the writer of Genesis makes an interesting statement. He says, God rested on the seventh day. And I'm thinking, God rested? God of the universe needed to rest? Does he sit there and say, wow, I am exhausted. Man, this is taking this is a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. You know, all oh, those animals, come on. And he makes him in a rocking chair with his feet up saying, I got to take a break. I just can't do this anymore. Of course not. But he speaks in that kind of language because he wants us to understand how important Sabbath is. How important it is to his creation. How important it is to us, his creatures. And our refusal to participate in Sabbath implies we know how to run the earth better than God does. And it implies something we wrestle with all of our lives. That our value and our worth is in what we produce. Instead of simply being children of God, created in His image. And we see the results of our refusal to practice Sabbath in the ecological and environmental meltdown of our world. We don't realize how important Sabbath is. It's mentioned almost 150 times in the scriptures it's one of the big ten commandments. Out of all the things God could say, here are the top ten. Sabbath keeping is one of those. It's probably the most ignored. Walter Brueggemann says God is not a workaholic, so why should we be? He says God isn't. God isn't like Pharaoh, who's driving the Israelites in their slavery. To, to do his bidding and every day on their backs all the time, God kicks back. He relaxes. There's no anxiety. There's no pressure. It's not that sense of productivity, there's rest. And Will Williman says practicing Sabbath is one of the most radical, countercultural things that any of us can do. That one day a week, we simply don't show up for work. And we so often ignore that. And then we wonder why we have so much anxiety and stress in our lives. Why we worry and fear about the world and why we we miss so much of what God wants to say to us. I, I have a feeling one of the reasons we struggle with Sabbath is because it's been ingrained in us. The Sabbath is about what you can't do. If you grew up in the church, my guess is that was probably the perspective. But actually, Sabbath is a gift of God. It's about what you can do. It is is this day when we don't have, we're not in bondage to work anymore on that day. On this day, we get to spend extra time thinking about God, exploring God's creation, getting together with God's people. spending time with the family and friends that God has brought into our lives. It's a gift. And I'm convinced that one of the outcomes of not practicing Sabbath is viewed in the way that we tend to treat each other, especially when we disagree with each other. One of the... Realities that came to me as I was was researching the subject of, of how the world came to be and particularly the, the church's views about creation and as I talked to people was that there is a lot of animosity about varying views. If you go on the internet and you read different sites, you will find a fair amount of vitriolic language about people who feel differently about how the world began. Even within the context of creation. And I think at least a part of that comes back to our unwillingness to step back and take extra time with God because when we don't take extra time with God, it shouldn't surprise us that in our relationships, we don't really act that much like Jesus because we haven't given God the time to work in us and to change us and to help us. You know, we, I think it's important for us to acknowledge again that we're dealing in every every scenario and every nuance of what we believe, we're dealing with to some degree or another theories. There is a certain level of ambiguity in all of the all of the theories that we have. Again, because none of us were there, but Scripture is very clear, unambiguous about how we treat each other. I'm going to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13 1. If you figure out exactly how the world began, and you know it precisely, and your conclusions are without doubt and without rival and without any question at all, but you don't have love, your conclusions are worthless. You missed it. As someone reminded me the other day, and I've mentioned this before, it's not enough just to agree to disagree. Because that takes on a negative connotation. And most of the time, what we mean by that is, I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll, you'll come to the light and figure it out. And in the meantime, I will hammer you until you do figure it out. Instead, I think a much better perspective is to say, as we disagree with each other, we do that in a spirit of love and respect and humility and openness. Because we have come to realize, as the Spirit works in us, that we don't have every answer to every question. We don't know everything there is to know. And I respect this brother or sister in Christ enough to believe and realize that God has said things to them that he hasn't said to me. And I can learn from them despite the fact that we may disagree. I think that's a much healthier perspective, a much more biblical perspective. And when we boil all of this down, The real issue of the creation story is less about answering our specific questions about how everything came to be the way it is. It's really about leading us into worship of God, who is our creator and our hope. Revelation chapter 4. You get to the end of that and he says, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And it was your will, your desire that they be created. That's why we worship you. In Isaiah chapter 40, the Israelites are complaining to God about the fact that they've forgotten, that he's forgotten them, and he's turned from them, and he's ignoring them. And God says, "Do you look around you and see all that I've created and everything that I've done, the stars in the sky. And then he says, he says why do you complain, O Jacob? Why do you say that the Lord has forgotten you, O Israel? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ants of the earth. And he will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young people stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's about God. Our hope is not in a theory of creation. Our hope is in the creator. And we can have our differences of opinion... And we will have our differences of opinion... About this and lots of other things. But if that becomes the focus... If that becomes what drives our lives we have missed the whole point. It's about worshiping God in whom is our hope, our joy, our life and everything good that we see around us. It's about the kingdom of God that has come in Christ This kingdom that we've been invited to be a part of. And this kingdom that in the words of God is good, very good. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. How long did it take for God to create the world? I don't know. And that's okay. because I believe with all of my heart that God is the one who created it. And it's in Him that I put my trust and my hope. And I someday hopefully will keep learning more and exploring more and understanding more. But even as we do that, our hope is not in that. It's in God. Gracious Father, we thank you for the way that you have illuminated the minds of people who study your creation. And to see how they have explored the vastness of space and the intricacies of the tiniest flower and insect and us. Father, help us even as we learn more and more about your world and use the gift of knowledge and understanding that you've given to us to explore your world. Help us to keep our focus on you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. I'd like to ask you to to do something this week. Last week I encouraged you to read an extra 10 minutes or so of the scriptures and I encourage you to continue that. But this week to take some time every day at night, during the day, whenever you can catch it to ponder God's creation. Go out at night and look at the stars. Go on the day and just explore a tree in your yard or where near where you work. Look at the grass. Contemplate a bird. Something of God's creation. Think about yourself and the intricacies of how you have been made. And let it lead you to worship of the Creator. Please stand for the closing song. God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Creator God turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.